50 years ago, people gathered in a small park in Carbondale, Colorado to celebrate art, music, and community. That gathering became the Carbondale Mountain Fair. Hear the voices, stories, and sounds as we take you on a journey of 50 years of the fair. And um, I'd like to say to each and every one of you, it's a beautiful day to be who you are. You could have had a choice to be somewhere else, but you chose to be here. And from our hearts to yours, welcome. It's a beautiful day. I want to start off um, being as a nation that was put on earth by the Creator. We were put here as a people to pray. So if you would, in honor of Mother Earth, yourselves, your family, your relatives, if you would stand at this time and let me say a prayer and you also know how, you, how to pray, how you understand a Creator. For today is a beautiful day to be proud of who you are. It's a beautiful day to remember the importance of water. Mini, mini wichoni, water is life. It's also a beautiful day to respect Mother Earth because we've got no place else to live but Mother Earth. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, and I will ask that the Creator spread his wings over this event and let his pollen fall from amongst his feathers. We can dance on our way home and give us the rest of this day as a glorious time to be together and look out for each other. Take care of one another as he had intended for us to be. With that, this is the place to be because there is just no other place quite like this place. So this has got to be the place to be. We were mountain fair crazy from the giddy up. It's our town's party. It's Carbondale's party, but we were busy. I think we had some 800 people at our first fair. Today, of course, that number seems faintly, quaintly preposterous. But in the early 70s, that was a big crowd. The Carbondale Mountain Fair proved popular from the beginning with the locals, even the ones who didn't necessarily love the hippies. As the years passed, it just kept getting crazier. Busy dizzy. Fred Williams was Carbondale's police chief from 1982 to 1997. Not quite as full as you see it today, but it, it was busy. It was very busy. And then in the 80s, that's when it really expanded. We, we began to see a lot of... A lot of new faces. Well, it's grown so much, that's for sure. Um, I remember that one of the things was the parking situation when it really like exploded with the popularity. People didn't even, people in Carbondale didn't feel like it should be advertised because we were inundated with all these visitors. And then we heard the numbers were like 10,000 over the weekend, 20,000. I mean, you, we know Carbondale is so small. Where are these people gonna be? And um, how do you put up with all that crowd? So you want it to be successful, yet how do you contain it? And um, so it, it really, really grew quickly. In 1989, Carbondale native and longtime teacher Mary Ferguson counted the number of cars parked on her block near the park. 
At one time, I counted 44 cars in my block. That is from Main Street to Colorado Avenue. Is that right? 44 cars. Huh, huh. Just parked on the two sides of the street, and that's a lot of cars. In the early days, there was no open container law in Carbondale, which meant that anyone could bring alcohol into the park any time during the fair. Early on, this contributed to a wide-open sort of Wild West reputation for the fair as a massive drunken debauchery. It wasn't exactly family-friendly and would prove to be a divisive issue in the mid-'80s. One year, I was, I was with a guy. Ray and, and John Robin weren't there this year. And it was me and several other guys whom I didn't know real well. And one of them was this tall, kind of, I don't know, he was a rough-looking guy. He and I decided we would pair up to go around the, the uh, fair, the, the, around Sopers Park, to tell people it, it's time to go, the curfew and all that, so uh, adios. And I would walk up to them in my chuckle-headed way and, and softly urge them to uh, get the hell out of the park, although I never... I never actually was uh, aggressive about it. And if they gave me any trouble, this guy would come up. The guy that I mentioned before, he was he was a tough-looking guy. And he would just come up and say, go, now. And they would invariably get up and leave. No matter how drunk they were, they didn't want to mess with him. And <laughs> I found out later, after we had done this a few times I said so what's your secret and he said well let me ask you a question first do these things ever get rough does trouble real trouble ever arise and I said well no not usually sometimes people are a little belligerent but they're usually so drunk that they can't hardly walk so they're easy to handle and I said why and he said well I'm prepared for if they get rough and he opened up his this little jacket that he had on and strapped underneath his shoulder was a shoulder holster with what looked like a junior-grade cannon in it. He was actually carrying a gun around the park. As things got busier and wilder, overnight security became necessary. But clearly, a schlub of a rent-a-cop wouldn't do for the Carbondale Mountain Fair. How about a budding concert pianist, a classical music conductor, and a newspaper reporter? Here's reporter John Colson. I joined what we called the A-Team, which was the nighttime security force for the weekend. We'd, we would uh, get crazy at the fair all day, and then we'd have to stay awake all night to make sure people didn't sneak into the park and steal stuff from the booths. And uh, we did that with the help of various substances um, that helped to keep us awake. And at that time, two guys who are now lamentably gone from us, Ray Adams and uh, John Robin Sutherland were the ones who dra dragooned me into the A-team. I don't know how they got involved. We would just uh, stay awake for basically three straight days. <laughs> and at night we would roam the park and uh, have some pretty strange adventures. Another year we we had a guy who used to live here named Mike Spear who joined us on the A-team for a couple of years in a row, but one in particular, he uh, somehow he got separated from us and wandered off and 
went into a booth and fell asleep leaning up against a, a beer keg in the booth. And he just went out. And it wasn't until the next morning when we went to wake him up that he said, oh, where's the beer keg? I was leaning against a beer keg. And it turned out that someone had come in and stolen the beer keg out from under him without waking him up. We never caught anybody in the act of trying to steal anything, which um, was either really lucky or just really dumb on our parts. We we heard that things got stolen every now and then, but it didn't happen much. One year, um, we had a um, we had some some cocaine to keep ourselves awake, and one of us, Ray, had just taken a snort. And all of a sudden, he saw a cop car pull up next to the what was then a, an annual and impromptu um, jerry-built stage. And he, he decided to go over and talk with the cop. I, I don't think I should name the cop, but uh, he leaned in to, to uh, talk to him, and this big rock of cocaine fell out of his nose and onto the cop's lap. And the cop looked down at his lap, then he looked up at Ray and said, Ray, you're a mess, and drove off. <laughs> no, uh, no, no words of approbation or, or caution or, or potential for arrest, nothing, which I, I took as a really good sign for the, uh, the uh, humanity quotient, humanitarian quotient of the Carbondale Police Force. They were uh, they were pretty forgiving back then. Back in the day, there was a bench right where the sound booth is now, and there was just a tiny little sound booth and a bench and a porta potty right behind it. That was the fair. And one of my favorite stories is uh, Fred Williams was the uh, police chief at the time. And we all volunteered for different security things, and John Robin and Ray Adams always had the nighttime. And they'd just walk around from booth to booth and spend the night, and everyone knows what they were doing. So one night, Fred, I was coming off my shift, and John Robin and Ray were getting coming on. Fred shows up with a, a box of powdered donuts and says, do you guys want any? And course John Robin and those who weren't hungry at the time. So Fred went into the porta potty and came out with white powder all over his nose and he turns to him and goes, Want some? In the early years a lot of energy was focused every year on building the stage, which was then dismantled at the end of the weekend. Brad Hendricks, former town trustee and longtime Mountain Fair volunteer, remembers how they did it. From then on I pretty much uh, busied myself with the uh, construction of the uh, of the of the um, bandstand and that partly because I'm in the construction business and it's something I could help and it was a big job you know we used to put up a, an, a big enormous bandstand every year um, we'd start Friday Thursday afternoon before the fair and and have it done Friday in time and then tear it down uh, the, the next Monday it'd be gone one of the things I kind of wanted to mention was some of the early people that did that th That's their right. share and then 
And then it's just kind of forgotten. Now, Jimmy Santa Cruz is a good example. I believe Jimmy pretty much single-handedly built the first bandstand, or single-handedly with his crew, and then uh, was certainly active in the first couple of them. And then he backed out, like you do. You, you do your share, and then you let somebody else come on. And uh, not very many people remember that those days. Um, Tim Villieri used to come in with a whole crew of guys. And I'd be, I'd be nominally in charge of building the bandstand, and... We'd be down there tacking stuff up, and I'd hear a whoop and look over, and here'd be Tim and uh, five or six guys, and he's and they're on Tim's payroll on the clock, and they'd roll in at noon on Saturday or on Friday, and that bandstand would go right up, you know. Um, Bill Bullard used to spend a lot of energy with that. He'd bring over yes. slabs and logs and his truck to set stuff. Uh, Rick Lawrence was in in a, a couple of years, and Rick would bring some crew too, you know. Some of these guys not only helped in that they they were there and helping but they had guys on their payroll this was money coming out of their pocket and over there building stuff a lot of people contributed to that bandstand that have no idea they did because what we would do for materials is we we'd all know somebody who was in at the stage of construction and and around the middle of july you've got a lot of houses going up and we find somebody that either was ready to frame a roof or a floor and just call the lumberyard and have their materials sent to the park instead of the job site they'd go into the bandstand and then we'd tear him down and take him onto the job site, and the owner'd have no idea that, <laughs> that his roof or his subfloor <laughs> was in the park for the so weekend. So they're finding out and, something tonight. <laughs> well, then nobody knows which one. I know uh, Ronnie. Ronnie helped us with that. Rick, I think, did. I did on a job. I did. Uh, there was uh, um, Tim Villiers. Uh, uh, there, there's there's a number of people that did that, and it was at a cost to nobody, and yet we had good material to work with, you know. So. Uh, because we could do it all without cutting it up. We'd clean it all up and have it on the job site, and you'd never know. In the early days of the fair, in the in the 70s, there, there really, uh, well, the first few years, there was no stage at all. Um, there was really no act going on in those first year or two, as I remember it. But in the late 70s, um, or middle 70s, actually, probably middle of the late 70s, the uh, group of people started bringing over a flatbed trailer and that was the stage for many years uh on a flatbed trailer the uh, hp hansen and his partner ben and charlie would bring over their flatbed trailer and then other local uh, contractors would bring in the wood to build the stage bill bullard was one of the one of the uh local contractors of course he owned the sawmill so he was able to bring in the good wood Brad Hendricks would always bring wood and materials. And then a group of people would build that stage on that flatbed trailer, only to be taken down on Sunday evening. Um, and then about, I'm thinking maybe 81, 82, something like that, the current, I don't know, maybe it's later than that, but the current gazebo was built. And um, if you, you know, as well as I do, the... Uh, the marble plaque on the side of that gazebo is for Benjamin Reed. Ben Reed was a local carpenter who always donated his time and energy to building that stage in the 70s. Great guy, friend of everybody's, and that stage is named after Ben Reed. Well, you know, we've, we've been building that, that stage forever and sort of probably thought we always would. Uh, sadly, I, I want to say... 82 or 3, I don't remember exactly which year. Um, my husband and Ben were uh, hit some black ice on the way out of town, and there was a pretty nasty car wreck, and Ben, did, ben survived the wreck. 
um, Ben was a um, he was part of our crew with a, of a you know with with our logging show and, and sawmill operation up on the McNulty Ranch, and um, he was just a, a, a ladies' man around town. He was a dancing fool. He Ben loved to dance. You know, you'd find him at the Nugget, you'd find him at the Mountain Man, you'd find him out just you know anywhere there was music, you know, any kind of road show. He was out there dancing. He loved to dance, and um, he said so. He sadly in the. Uh, um, Stanford actually came to St. Mary's and they did a they took his heart for a transplant. It was the farthest east they'd ever come at that point in time. It was pretty it was pretty cool. Anyway, so Ben did not survive. So we threw several benefits and um and and there were all these donations and, and stuff you know, for toward Ben, for Ben, and his family turned them over to us and said, What is it that you would do with this? to you know to honor ben and we're like mountain fair he loved it you know he would start he would dance at mountain he was almost like meredith used to be he would start on friday night thursday friday night and dance clear through to sunday night and so we ended up taking the money and building the ben reed memorial gazebo ron leach and barb bush remembering ben reed from the very beginning the slideshow was enormously popular Local photographer Jim Ryan began the practice of collecting photos of fairgoers and putting them together in a slideshow at the end of the fair on Sunday night. That practice lasted until 2017. Though Jim didn't do it all those years, here he is describing how it came together. Dean Arneson and I did the first slideshow with real slides that we photographed during the day, developed them at my lab, and then synced them to music and showed them back on Sunday night at 9.30. It was a huge hit with all the locals. It was a nice way to, to wind down. We did that for two or three years. Then I did one with Willie Savarese, um, Becky Young, Grambois did one, Patty Berry Levy did one. Um, and it was the funnest thing to do because Carbondale is the volunteer capital of the world. I had a complete color darkroom. And that, that was the business I was in. So I could print, and I had what's called an E6 kit, and they f developed ectochrome slides. So I lived over on Sopris Avenue, and I had the lab all set up, so I would go over every night after we got done and develop the slides, get up early, sync them to music, get ready to go again. And we did that three days in a row. The hardest part was syncing them to music and having the right slide come at the right song, that kind of thing. And it, it was important to us to make that happen. And it made people feel good and they'd walk away going, that was cool. The fun part was is that nobody was inhibited. You know, I could just walk up and I didn't even ask if I could take their picture. Sometimes I did if I didn't know them, but most of the time they'd go, are you the fair photographer? i go, yeah. And then somebody would come running up going, have you seen that girl in a bikini sitting on the bench over there? And I said, no, and I'd walk over and she'd go, are you the fair photographer? And I go, yeah, and she'd go, whoop. I go, you're in the show. Tom Fulker and Stacy Dickerson remember the glow of a good slideshow. And then you never wanted to miss Sunday night because Jim Ryan and um, Dean Arneson and Doug Arneson they had a color photo lab at Redstone. And so they would go home and they would come back Sunday night and you'd have a slideshow of that weekend, which was unheard of in those days. You know, it was not like we had digital cameras. Those guys would do the, 
and they were all over that park with their cameras. I bet Jim Ryan has pictures of the fair that, you know, thousands of them, because he was the man on the camera. And beautiful pictures, you know. And you'd see a lot of pictures of, uh, he was good at zeroing on the little kids all dressed up. Just how much fun they were having. The slideshow at the end of the fair was just so magical. Just to lie on the, your blanket after this wonderful, wonderful weekend and and then watch the the magic of the fair unfold and the faces and the the expressions of joy and love uh, was just so special. Um, and oh my God, but in, the slideshow was such an undertaking. That was way before digital. I mean, there'd be these photographers that had to run their cameras and their film up to Aspen to the slide master and get all of those things developed and then go through them and put them together. And this gorgeous slideshow was just another thing. And, and it makes me think of that whole magic of, of just watching that little teeny part, watch it just come together with all of this support and all of these people working together in cooperation for a common goal was so magical. Um, really it was. And it, and truly being part of it was such a sense of great pride of having, being able to be part of this thing that brought so many people together and brought so many people such joy and happiness and love and you know it's just a just always been such a cool thing and it doesn't really repeat itself and uh, I've you know gone to so many festivals and I just don't ever feel like it it's, there's, there's just nothing like the Carbondale Mountain Fair. The fire department was an early and enthusiastic participant in the fair. Here are Ron Leach, former fire chief, and Barb Bush, longtime local nurse and stalwart volunteer at the Carbondale Fire Department. The fire department has has always has always been um, part of that mountain fair, even from the very early days. And um, we always thought, I always thought, that it was just a natural uh, the, the volunteer fire department. Um, be part of the mountain fair, and and we were, you know, our days, our rowdy days of uh, building the two-story booth with the hot dog stand and stuff. Those those days kind of morphed into more of a uh, more of a just a community service type of uh, weekend. We got the idea of giving away bike helmets from from our from our ambulance service uh, in the community and from the doctors at the hospitals. There's started to be a, a big push toward getting helmets on kids uh, and bikes and snowboards, you know, in the 90s, I guess, push started. And uh, we just, we got a grant from uh, the Aspen Valley Medical Foundation to uh, buy bike helmets. And, um, you know, we bought a bunch of those bike helmets, hundreds of them, and we just give them away. And that was a big hit with the kids and the parents at Mountain Fair. And just the first aid booth that we that we provide for the mountain fair is a is a big community um, uh, contribution during the fair. Lots of people come through that first aid booth with a skinned knee or a splinter or you know needing a little bit of water or a cool place to sit down. So 
we've always had a really tight connection with the mountains there out at the fire department. Always. And uh, I'm real proud of that. You know, I used to build a uh, two-story booth right next to the main stage there on the uh, north side of the main stage and uh, sell hot dogs there as a kind of a fundraiser. But it was really just a gimmick to get us all in close to the stage. We had a pole that we, everybody would slide down. The kids would come on, slide down the fire pole. We'd sell hot dogs. Uh, we didn't sell beer, but we drank a lot of beer. <laughs> but, and then, of course, it was in July, so the crowd would get hot, you know, and we would spray down the crowd from up to the top of that second-story hot dog booth, you know, get into some pretty heated discussions with Thomas Lolly over that, because he did not really want us spraying that crowd with that fire hose. It was quite the place to hang out because it was sort of an eagle, eagle's eye view of of the you know the dance floor and well of the whole park of the, of the stage, <clears throat> and it was just a great place to go hang out. I mean, um, you know, we we locked it down. It wasn't it wasn't open to the public just for you know legal legal stuff. We only and just because of the amount of traffic we started getting to it, but we just would. Uh, I I forget whose grand idea it was. Ron Leach maybe or Billy Gavette or. I don't even remember. There's just a, you know, somebody looked up one day and said, let's make a two story this year. We're all like, yeah, let's make a two story. So we built a two story booth. I joined the fire department in hmm, 70, 76, 77, somewhere in there. And the fire department at the mountain fair hat was, was, was threefold. We were EMS and fire. We also, uh, where the information booth is now, we had a two, we built a two-story booth every year. Well, not every year. We, we started building a two-story booth about the fifth year we were there. And we, we also had, we were a, uh, the hot dog booth. And we also were in charge of the trash for the whole park. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, pretty busy with a lot, a lot of those pieces to it. The locals quickly came to see that the craft and food booths might be a good way to make some extra cash. But if they thought it would be easy, they had another think coming. Here are Tom Folker, Marge Palmer, John Gorman, Brenda Buchanan, Carla Lewis, and Jeff and Priscilla Dickinson sharing their Mountain Fair booth recollections. One of my old college buddies from CSU came up in one of those early years. And he walked up and told me he wanted to know my name. And he said he knew me from somewhere and had no idea. And we started comparing notes. And this was a a regular what you would classify as a hippie in his leather clothes, and he had leather goods that he had built all year, and turned out he was from Coal Creek Canyon, which is over north of Golden. And I was surprised that there were people coming from that far away to this mountain fair, and he said, well, he sold more stuff here then than than anywhere else. He was, I think he just hit fairs as his avocation. And... uh, we, uh, you know, so it was just amazing how many booths started being set up. And then the they'd had the face painting for kids, so there was always something going on for the kids to do as well. We had been making these candle holders. We got the idea came from Eddie's mother, Mabel. Uh, she was doing it in Seattle. And so we just copied what she had already created. And my uh, sister and her Recent, was recently married, and they were sort of on a cross-country uh, honeymoon trip, and, and they assisted us. And we paid them because so, they ran out of money to get back home to Florida. 
uh, it was amazing. We uh, soon became the most successful food booth and they placed us on the corner uh, right in front of the, um, uh, the stage. So we, we got to be blasted with the music and you know, right in a very good flow, we had typically long lines and um, uh, I could make uh, a sandwich in less than 10 seconds. So we were moving uh, our long lines more quickly than uh, almost anybody was moving lines in front of their food booths, just because we had enough people and a system worked out. In addition, I mean, I would spend <clears throat> a few hours um, in preparation. I was still working at the Colorado Rocky Mountain School, chopping onions, chopping tomatoes, chopping parsley. And I mean, you know, chop a few uh, uh, onions, a 50 pound sack and you know, even uh, greater weight of tomatoes and uh, just a few pounds of parsley, but that's a lot of parsley. Yeah, so it, it was uh, quite an operation. I mean, uh, worked many hours a day before, during, and then the, the day after the fair, cleaning up, taking everything down. So it was, um, uh, an extremely taxing, challenging weekend. But uh, as I said, we were the most successful um, food booth. In other words, you know, they count that just by gross sales. The food was fabulous from the giddy up. And uh, it, it's re remarkable that the, the Mountain Fair, I mean, we've always known that and, and try really hard to get, you know, something good and something really special. So the food was good. It's always been very, very good, every year. So I think for four or five years, we had the Rocky Mountain Flamingo Memorial Tostado Stand. And it was huge success, huge success. And so all my friends, and of course we did dress up in costumes, all my friends helped me, and I mean lots of friends. We had about 40 or 50 people going through there. Uh, it was me and Steve Smith because uh, he was my roommate, were the bosses of it. And I don't think we, you know, I don't think we paid anyone. Only then Bruce got to live with me, who got to be one of the bosses of it. And we made money. I worked my ass off from, you know, to doing it. But everybody just came back there because we supplied the beer kegs and the fun. And it was the place to be. But I think they, st you know, a, a cool booth to hang out in. Well, that was very comfortable. For the first few years, probably from 73 um, until maybe like 1980 or so, I was just doing you know my jewelry and clothing. And then it's like, well, let's do something new. Let's mix it up a little bit. And how about food? Um, not that I knew anything about running a food booth or a restaurant, but I did know how to make a quiche and baklava and spanakopita. So we decided to go with that. And uh, my parents were here um, visiting at the time, so 
put them to work right away and they were manning the booth and I came down with like 90 quiches and trays and trays of spanakopita and baklava, which immediately sold out like that first day. I was like, oh, what do we do now? (laughs) So I left my parents there and I went home to bake a bunch more quiches and people would kind of get a little pissed off coming, you know, like I'll have a piece of quiche, I'll have a piece of baklava. No, no, we don't have any of that. It was like, okay, spanakopita. No, no, we don't have any of that. (laughs) But my daughter's home baking. She'll be back in a few hours. And and then I'd come down with some more and it would run out in 10 minutes and it would start all over again. And I mean, we didn't even have a cash box. We just had a cup on the counter, like leave a few dollars in there and take some money out if you don't have change. And, you know, just, um, we were just winging it, and then uh, well, we thought that was kind of fun. A lot of work, and probably you know more work than I really liked. But Kirk Treaty's daughter was part of Mountain Sage, uh, my Kirk, school. Kirk Treaty of Pepinos. Of Pepinos, and right there at Pepinos is right down the street from where Mountain Fair is happening. And so he was a, a parent of the school, and. <clears throat> And there was this idea of having spaghetti because kids, what do kids eat at Mountain Fair? Well, they'll eat spaghetti is the thought of the parents. And so we decided to do the Spaghetti Express. And um, (laughs) lo and behold, what does it take to make spaghetti? It sounds so simple, spaghetti. However, you got to make it in advance, but you can't make it too far in advance or it's not gonna it's gonna gum up and all that stuff so we would go to pepino's because it was a hit so we ran out the first day we had to make a batch and to cook that much pasta took hours and hours and hours we were up till 2 a.m making this pasta and then wrapping it around our hands so that we could portion it and we didn't know what the heck we were doing <laughs> Well, it was a great idea, and uh, we made tons of money, but uh, thank goodness for Anne and Kurt Treaty for providing the, um, the pepinos space, yeah. and the water. I mean, you needed the huge cauldrons cauldron of water to boil, and then all that pasta going in. <laughs> That's crazy. For decades, if you were on stage at the Mountain Fair looking out at the crowd, you'd see a sign to the right of the sound booth reading Camp Bonedale. This wasn't a blatant attempt by someone to claim prime space in front of the stage. It was richer and deeper than that. Camp Bonedale became a refuge from the crowds of people at the fair and also the ones beginning to overrun the Roaring Fork Valley. Drew Handy and Stacy Dickerson are charter members of Camp Bonedale. Most most came from John Teal. Um, he, uh, he built this sign, which I still have in my backyard. Camp Bonedale sign, and we changed the year every year on it, and it was uh, just a place that we all gathered. And uh, um, uh, Todd Welch and I would get up early Friday morning as we were going to work, and we would meet at the at the park and set the Camp Bonedale sign down and uh, lay down some drops so we could uh, uh, find a place that all of us could gather. And that was that was huge because everybody knew or at least all, a lot of us old friends knew where to come and see your friends and, you know, bring your kids. And, um, uh, you know, we, at that stage, we had huge coolers full of beer just for anybody who 
came by. And, uh, um, you know, it was, it, it was good memories because we, that was the place we all got to hang out. And it, we, we put it in front of the stage and in front, in the middle of everything. And, uh, you know, that was, that was where we all hung out. And uh, uh, it, was, it was our meeting place. Campondale was a sort of a central place and it was always fun. It was always a really fun place to be because you'd just be surrounded by 10, 20, 30 people that you knew really, really well. And we, it was a reunion of sorts often. For many years, I, I, the, the crowd that I was very connected to um, was the Camp Bonedale group. And so had a lot of friends that um, we would always meet and hang out at Camp Bonedale, which was just a, a way for us to um, always know it was a central location. We would always know that we could find friends at Camp Bonedale. Camp Bonedale inspired uh, my uh, ex-husband's brother, John Teal, was a very charismatic and enthusiastic uh, community organizer, let's call him. And he, uh, he was he coached our softball team and he inspired everyone and he really loved getting um, everybody together as a group and just being, being, it was like a family. And so, and he, and John and the Teal boys all grew up here. Um, They weren't born here, but they grew up here, went through, I think junior high and high school here. And so they had, so they were, they were real connected with the local community and it was just a great way to just say, hey, well, I know there's a lot of people that are coming in that are from elsewhere, and let's just make this be a place that are for people from Carbondale. So they made a sign, and they changed the date on it every year, and they set it up uh, about around where the sound booth was, usually to the left of the sound booth a little bit, and... It was just called Camp Bonedale, and it, it was just a spot everybody would go to and and hang out with the friends that they had grown up with. Well, Wick Wick was on on the board. Um, Chris Landry, who was a weaving loom builder, his wife was a weaver, and uh, he was he was there. Jan Edwards, who was a potter. Um, Larry Tripp might have been involved. Uh, after we did two mountain fairs, um, we we decided we had a, a board, and we decided that um, that we you know we should do more stuff year round, and. Uh, we brought in a theater group from CSU in Fort Collins, and they performed Antigone on the street in front of the Dinkle Building. We also did some culinary arts festivals down at CRMS Barn, and we had we had various music groups come in. At the time, the only um, sizable performance venue was the barn at CRMS, and so we had a good relationship with the school, and we brought in um, various music groups to perform there. And then we decided, well, we needed to formalize 
uh, an organization, uh, you know, to continue this trend. And the State Council on Arts and Humanities um, were really promoting this kind of uh, artistic development in communities. And especially, uh, you know, the ski area communities um, that had nothing going for them outside of winter. And uh, they thought that, you know, the arts would be a good way to um, promote uh, economic growth and to bring people together. And so they mentored us. Um, Judith Ray, who was with the Arts Council, was a significant part of our establishing our our council, and she uh, she was my main mentor. Lori Loeb, developing alongside all the fun and games of the boring necessities like boards of directors and permits and systems and logistics. In the early years, Brad Hendricks had a unique perspective on these issues, having spent so much time volunteering with the stage building. You heard him earlier describing those efforts. Here he talks about some of the early administrative issues and the people dealing with them. When I first started doing that, the fair, the Arts Council, the Board of Directors of the Arts Council were, was the fair. The Arts Council just directly ran the fair. And what we did was one year setting up, you know, in order to do legal basis and things, I got some some IRS opinion that that the, uh, the because of the either the sale of the of the t-shirts of the sale of the coca-cola because there were direct sales involved that a nonprofit organization couldn't do that to fund itself so then we formed the carbondale mountain fair corporation i believe it's called and that is a for-profit organization but they take they or a tax i don't know whether it's for it's a taxpaying organization at any rate but that most of the money or all of the money that is generated from that company is donated to or corporation is donated to the arts council, and that's the way you can do that with the, with the profit or the sales involved directly with a non nonprofit uh, organization. And so, at the beginning, we were just doing it as as one outfit, and the board of directors was the same board of directors. Then we started actually having a little bit different board of directors, where the arts council board of directors would pick the mountain fair board of directors. And like I say, I came to the arts council right after I believe. And not very long after Lori Loeb had left the Arts Council, after really being the person that, the in yeah, instrumental in starting it and everything. And, uh, I mean, a few people that come to mind, but that were just, you know, that were there the whole time and, and great on that board, Judy Welch and John Stickney, Leanne Eustace. Uh, oh, yes. I mean, those three were... were uh, Very active. Very active and very... Uh, um, very thorough. I mean, they were there a long time, and they put in a lot of effort, Very a lot of energy, dedicated and, and dedicated people. I mean, I, I, to this day, if there's one person in town that, that, that could can motivate me to do something because I don't want her to look at me like I didn't get my job done, it's Judy Welch. I mean, I, <laughs> she's the best board member I've ever seen, just in terms of being able to make everybody else do things because she does what she says she's going to do. If she tells you that. She's going to walk to the moon. She'll 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 do she'll that very thing, and uh, and so then that makes you do that. And the whole board worked that way. I mean, it worked. It was a good working board because you know there was no coming in and saying, "Oh, I spaced that out" or "I blew it off," or you just you know people would look at you that you didn't want to look at you that way. It was that kind of a board, and that's how it works. You know, that's how things well, get that's done. That's successful. Exactly. That's exactly. Why it's grown like it just it has. and I've been on other boards where. 
you just don't do it and you come in and say, oh, I didn't have time and everybody's saying, oh, well, I didn't have time either. And it's just, away. yeah. And the, and the whole organization is gone. And that's, and it's due to, you know, those three people is, and like I say, Lori obviously started it, but I wasn't there in those days to see how that worked. But in the days I was there, the, uh, Leanne and, uh, John and Judy were the, well, were, they were the ones still with us. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> She's still working yeah. very hard. And, uh, so it, you know, though, and that's what makes it is continuity and the dedication. In the latter part of the time when I was on the board, then we started hiring um, the things were big enough and successful. And it was such a hectic job that the Arts Council director couldn't do that and the fair because the fair was the whole summer. So we started hiring. Well, first we had an assistant and then we'd hire a specific mountain fair director. And uh, that that uh, that's a hectic job. I It was, uh, you know said that uh, Gwen Hansen's hair turned white overnight over that job <laughs> or some part of it <laughs> but uh, that uh, um, and things and that's another way that that in a way the leadership from the, the council and the board has been good is that they have gone ahead and and done the things that needed to be done to make it organized and hire the personnel and uh, and the right personnel to run this to, to get to pull the job off one of the things I always hate to see too, and this again talking about the boards and stuff, is that is that people who, what you always have a tendency on that board, you'll get people who are who are very conscientious and and want to protect the fair and things, and they forget or don't even know who who you know they'll kind of alienate other people who feel like they own the fair the fair is a little bit of their baby and their project and the and the board people have no idea of that and maybe somebody locally who who was a carpenter and worked on five successive uh, bandstand constructions or carried trash for 10 years or or has parked for years and feel like it's a little piece of theirs and they'll and they'll put in for maybe a belt booth or a macaroni arts booth or whatever and get turned down and then suddenly think well wait a minute this is my fair i I built this, rightly so, because they did, and the people who are making the decisions don't even know that. I mean, That's they don't true. have the they, history to... They, and, the, and, and the background. And it's true of anything. I mean, I'm sure it's true. I mean, I know there are people in Carbondale who built Carbondale who, who, who can be kind of the people of your generation who kind of walk around, nobody even knows their, you know, or the majority of people, the younger people, don't even know their names, and they think, well, this isn't right. But it's the nature of things. It's just the nature of things. Part of yeah, growth and and I mean exactly. It's the fair is like the town in in miniature in that it grows and it changes and expands and in 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 a great sense a lot of um, it's just the way it works is that. Uh, but I always hate to see it and I you know it seems like every year or every so often I hear you know sadness or complaints that it's kind of gotten you know it's like you know it's kind of not you know the locals the local artists and things don't show in it and so on but you just have to look at the direction it went and has gone and say well it's you can't have it all you can't have all of the local people sh on a showing just by virtue of the fact they're local and also have a real high quality arts fair and um and and the f the fair is successful in the direction they've gone in 1987, Thomas Lawley was hired as the Combined Mountain Fair Arts Council Director. He kept the job until 2002. His tenure began with the banning of outside alcohol in the park. It was Thomas who really began to professionalize and streamline the Mountain Fair, starting with dealing with the alcohol problems and also upgrading the music. Here's Fred Williams. I, I really feel bad that Thomas Lawley is no longer here. Um, I worked so closely with him for for over 10 years, at least over 10 years. Uh, I wish he was still here to uh, celebrate the big anniversary of Mountain Fair.
I have had no problems with Thomas Lilly. I tell him the problems that I was having. He would tell you know he would tell me his side of the story, and then we say, okay, well, how do we work this out? Um, I, I thought he was, I thought he was great to work with. Well, I give Thomas Lolly a lot of credit. You know, he he realized that uh, the fair should be more than just a a big drunken weekend, and and also Mountain Fair makes more makes more money at the vendors that at the family oriented fair than just a big weekend drunk. So you know they 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 understood the, the financially they understood it, and uh, um, Mountain Fair just grew up. Jeff Dickinson, Terry Glassnap, Bob Schultz, and Drew Handy all worked very closely on a regular basis with Thomas. So Thomas, I, I remember he had these, like, he'd have, like, 20 different uh, yellow legal pads, and somehow he knew what they were all for. And, you know, there'd be one that was the entertainment part, and one was the horseshoes, and one was the volunteers for the, you know, pie, and one was cake, and I don't even know what they all were, I mean. Yeah, they're probably in the Smithsonian or something now, but somehow he would have this in his head and know, and he'd go, oh, good idea, good idea, or oh, yeah, yeah. So when he'd go to this, pull out, rifle through all these legal pads, and he'd pull out the one, and he'd make a note in there, he'd go, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, he, he was a great leader, and that he was not, you know, he knew Thomas, he wasn't a heavy at all, he was in it for fun he loved music and he loved the community part and you know he he brought he did bring the greenness to the fair and you know it's evolved i mean now we have the green team we have evergreen um zero waste and you know all these things so we've really evolved since that time in the 80s or you know the inception of the fair so he definitely you know brought it along everybody you know everybody you know has up the level it has, we haven't gone backwards. We've always gotten better and better. So it's amazing that we have the green team and now we're, you know, really a model for, you know, what's happening, you know, as far as events now. And it's really cool. But, but Thomas, Thomas was fun. He would, you know, meetings were not boring, you know, and they were usually not controversial. You know, they were not, you know, hostile, but people would get their, get their views out there. And, you know, he had a good way. He was a good uh, diplomat and, making sure everybody had their opinions known. And he had, you know, he had a sense, you know, he had his pulse on the music. He would travel to the different events around the the country, like South by Southwest or whatever it was, and was always seeking out music. Thomas Lally, you know, he was my my good friend and guide uh, mentor in a lot of ways. There was a worldwide event called The World Instant of Cooperation, 1986, Meditation and Prayer for Peace. At the Methodist Church in Glenwood Springs, I met Thomas Lawley. Sometime later, um, I'm going to say about 1988, he called me up and he said, "Um, I got from Jeff Dickinson that you are doing some video work and we have this project that we would like to have documented. The project was the saxophonist Ernie Watts was living in Missouri Heights part-time and he and Thomas 
hatched an idea to create a, a band of locals around Ernie, and they would write music, rehearse, and do performances. So that was kind of my um, my doorway into CCAH. The other capacity that he had was to keep it really unruffled. To my eye, observing, he kept his cool. He kept um, such a calm demeanor. And I was frazzled by just trying to get from one part of the fair to the other. He moved here for the job of, um, I think it was a combined job, the Arts Council and the fair. And he really branched it out from what I knew previously in terms of events. And that included um, also a spectrum of mediums from cowboy poetry and poetry of a more um, um, literature-oriented style. Um, Let's see, um, a a Latino um, theater company, Su Teatro, he brought. And then bigger names, Richie Havens, Leo Kotke, um, Eliza Gilkison, and um, th- those are the ones that stand out to me. Yeah, you know, you know, hanging out with Thomas was was always a, a very positive thing. And uh, you know, Thomas did what was he, I think he ran the fair for seventeen years. Yeah, there was there was many good times spent with Thomas. You know, playing ping pong backstage, and and uh, you know him. We have pictures of him at at Camp Bonedale. You know, hanging with our kids when they were little. You know, he, he, uh, he lived for that Saturday night when the crowd was whipped into a frenzy after the, um, after the last band, he would just surf that energy. You know, there's, there's a few thousand people that are just so happy and so excited and just in a really, really positive energy space. And he loved getting up there and kind of helping people celebrate that and just feeling that energy. And so when I think of him, one of the things I I really think of is Saturday night after the last band, him just soaking up that energy. And I really think that that was something that he looked forward to the other 364 days of the year.
One of the enduring and beloved quirks of the Carbondale Mountain Fair is the Carbondale police deputies dressing in tie-dye. It's always surprising to the newbies and always proudly proclaimed by the locals. Here, the band of heathens shout out to the cops on stage at the 2010 Mountain Fair, and we hear Drew Handy, Jory and Peg DeVilbus, Lori Loeb, and John Colson extol the virtues of cops in tie-dye. We'd like to thank the Carbondale Police for electricity and tie-dye shirts. One of my favorite scenes is Gene Stilling, you know, our police chief who wears his tie-dye and all of the policemen wear their tie-dyes and that's just wonderful. I know, how cool is that? That is so cool. Our cops go around in tie-dyes, I love yeah. that. One of my yeah, favorite parts. Yeah. My friends will come into town and will take pictures with the policemen in their tie dyes because yeah. they just—it's yeah. the coolest thing. How cool is that? Awesome. Who? What other town does that? Oh, and another thing I love is—is is, you know when the police all dress up in their tie dye, and and everybody loves that because it, it makes them human and part of the fair. I was mighty impressed by that. I thought any any police department that can even subtly make fun of itself that way is is a pretty good police department to have. Here are the two police chiefs, Fred Williams and Gene Schilling, tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth about how the Carbondale cops came to wear tie-dye at the Mountain Fair. Greg Knott, who's now the chief of police in Basalt, and an officer named Tony Kornstevich, they came to me and wanted to do want to take some old police uniforms and, and tie-dye them. And I was thinking at the time, well, I don't know if that's a good idea or not. So I, I went ahead and let them do it. And that's where today tie-dye with the police department, that's how it, it, it originated. It was a big hit. I think people were, citizens were, were comfortable in contacting and contacting us and talking to us it, and it made people feel like we we were we were what we were the same we were them uh, we were human we weren't um, straight laced cops we'd have visitors from out of town out of country i remember french japanese people uh people from different states just coming up to to us and saying they, they couldn't believe officers were wearing tie-dye shirts. It, it just blew them away and just made us much more approachable to the citizens. It's a great thing. Um, that's, I think that's, that's helped our police department over the many, many years to uh, community policing. I think that's why this police department has been so successful over the years. 1994. 94. We get so many requests for photos. People that say, my, my, my friend or my uncle or my whatever is an officer in whatever, and I don't believe that they'd ever, ever believe cops would do this. And it's international people also. Huh. I'm from England. They'd never believe this, and, uh -huh. and we get that photo opportunity. So as far as I know, and of course I could be wrong, we're the only law enforcement agency in the United States that does that. There may be others, but I don't know about them if there is. 
Perhaps the most charismatic of all locals who ever appeared on the gazebo stage, Conan the Barbarian performed a lot during the 80s and early 90s. Sexy, buff, and hairy in tight pants. He could also belly dance and balance a very sharp sword on his nose. Every woman secretly loved him, and every guy was secretly jealous. Carla Lewis and Laurie Loeb remember Conan. That was really fun because that same year I was also dancing with Conan because uh, there were a bunch of us that were in um, Conan's belly dance class, and he was asked to dance, and he was like, well, do you want to be in the fair? And we're like, of course. <laughs> so um, it was a really fun, I mean, that, that was a, a really fun performance. You know, Conan, well, of course, was in his little tight pants with his sword on his head, and, and it was just wonderful just being on stage with him. And he, he was a belly dancer, but he also gave lessons. And um, at the time... There were a bunch of us taking classes with Mabel McDonald, and she brought him in as a guest teacher, and then he would teach a lot. So we were just all taking classes with him all the time and, um, you know, put together, you know, we, we put together a performance. And he was just so, well, he was just so much fun to watch. Um, he would he would always perform bare-chested with these, like, painted on pants and high black boots and a sword on his head and bend over backwards doing <laughs> just very dramatic stuff. And he was just incredible to watch and incredible to dance with. And One classic story. Conan used to be a belly dancer performing at the fair. He was a, a local guy. And uh, then I don't know if he just stopped dancing or moved away or what, but Thomas, one year, dressed up as a belly dancer and called himself Gonad the Barbarian and, and did a semblance of a belly dance on stage. And that, that was priceless. The Peace Patrol popped up in the 80s to help the beleaguered Carbondale cops deal with the invading hordes. Gene Schilling was Carbondale's top cop from 1997 to 2020. Here he describes how the Peace Patrol helped the police maintain that peaceful, easy feeling at Mountain Fair. They were a very huge part of probably our success. They were the ones that a lot of times would get us eyes on problems starting uh, long before we as the police officers may have seen those problems starting. A lot of times they'd solve them themselves so we didn't have to send officers, but there were times when it required our assistance and we were usually able to solve it sooner because we were able to get there before it escalated to a point where we needed more officers and maybe had to use physical force to deal with those things. Michael Gorman is part of the next generation getting ready to take over the fair. He is the supervisor of the Peace Patrol. Um, yeah, we do have a little interaction with the police. I mean, technically, we're we're trying to be like the the front line or like the kind of first um, face that people see, um, so that the police don't have to deal with the more kind of minor issues with like gate security and um, open container ordinances and and like glass and dogs in the park and stuff like that. They, they're kind of running the higher level, like safety and kind of town-wide issues. And, um, you know, it, it lets them focus on that. And then we get to have kind of a, a friendly, low-key vibe at the gates with these 
you know, peace patrollers who get to wear a mountain fair shirt and they're all volunteers and, you know, mostly just, you know, educating people about a couple of the super easy rules that we have to comply with, you know, putting on this huge fair right in the middle of town. And uh, it, it kind of keeps the fair vibe uh, at, at more of the atmosphere that we're going for. And um, so it's fun to be a part of that. Um, the police are super helpful and there's only been a small number of times where we had to, you know, use our radios to get some assistance from the police for, you know, a couple minor situations, but, you know, in the whole six or seven or so years that I've been doing it, I think that's only happened like once or twice. So I'm a, a peace patrol supervisor. So each of the kind of departments of the fair are all, you know, run by a, you know, one or two or a handful of supervisor volunteers who then kind of help organize the other volunteers that really make the whole thing happen. But to have, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of volunteers it takes every year to run the fair, but that takes a lot of work uh, just to organize that many people and get people to show up for their shift and kind of get them oriented and get them all their equipment and kind of give them the rundown and make sure that everyone showed up. And if somebody didn't show up, we kind of got to figure out how to fill those holes and um, kind of orchestrate all this huge volunteer effort that magically comes together somehow. Drew Handy remembers the origin of the Peace Patrol's name. You know, I remember one time uh, getting together with, with some people and uh, um, having a little party and talking about the fair. And that's, that was the, the time we came up with peace, peace patrol and uh, you know the name peace patrol instead of, instead of, you know, like mountain fair cops or something <laughs> lame like that, that we can't, we can't have. And uh, uh, we, so we had those little private parties that, that produced some, you know, good things for the fair. You might think that going green at a big event like the Mountain Fair is a recent phenomenon, in keeping with the way the culture is moving forward on sustainability issues. But the efforts of the green team go back at least 25 years, if not more. Jason White became involved in these efforts beginning in 2006 and is now one of the green team's movers and shakers. We'll also hear from Hillary Hendricks about her childhood experience at the fair in the 70s and 80s. From what I understand, um I kind of took, took over the position from Nikki Winneton, which was back in right around 06 or so is when I first started helping. And um, previous to 06, there were some other folks like Mark Weinhold, who I've mentioned, and he's still heavily involved. I believe that um, Marty Treadway was, was a big part of Green Team for years previous. And there's a few other characters that I've just you know heard their name. But previous to the 2005-2006 era, um, we didn't have the compost element. And so there, there's always been a high level of uh, stewardship, you know, for the environment, of course, in Carbondale. Um, and so it was probably like, so 
some recycling happening with cans and all that. Um, and I've heard stories of there was a cigarette butt team way back in the day, you know, where everyone walked around with, like, black the flower pots and walk around and just pick up cigarette butts. Um, I've seen some pretty cool photos of some old hippie, you know, green teamers, like, pushing each other around in wheelbarrows, and then they'd, like, stop and pick stuff up and then, like, jump back in and, you know, kind of do green team that way. So um, the, the current day level of trying to reach this 90% plus, which really we, we do that through composting, that's about 15 to 16 years old. My first official job, and it was not an official job, but I could think of is you used to get paid by the number 10 can for cigarette butts. You remember that, Heidi? We could yeah, pick up cigarette butts around the park, and if you fill the number 10 can, somebody would pay us money for it. I don't know who was paying for that. But it's a crazy thought as how much cigarette smoking was happening up here that we were filling number 10 cans, like many of them, and making money that way. So I would say that was my first official job. Jason describes their goal for diverting waste from the landfill and how that compares to other big events around the country. Yeah, so I would say we, we have the numbers and we have a, a, a pretty fun graph that I can share at some point. But um, that at least 15 years back, so 15 years plus back, you know, I've, I've been involved with it. And we hover right around a 90% or more uh, diversion rate. Wow. which means that only 10% of the waste that is produced at the fair goes to the actual landfill, to the trash. The 90% plus would be, then be anything that's composted, recycled, um, and you know a slight amount of reuse. We're not really as naive to think that we're ever going to get to 100% just because um, there's just a, some waste that we just can't do a whole lot about with, with where we are right now with the operations. For example, ice bags, and you got to have ice, right, to have cold beer and everything else. And um, so, you know, there's there's ways to, to kind of chop at that last, say, 5 to 10%, but that's the hardest because, you know, you're getting into levels of, of the, the trash bins that you don't really want to be digging in, like the diaper layer. You'll find um, there are some other festivals out there, some peers that we kind of look up to, one being playing a bluegrass, you know, of course, based out of Lions, and they do Telluride and Volksfest and all those. They, they've had a, a pretty strong green team probably going 20-plus years back. Uh, New Belgium, who used to be our main brewer at the Mountain Fair, uh, they've had a strong relationship with them. Um, and another another couple, couple fairs that are kind of on the national map are like the Oregon Country Fair. Uh, my friend Misty LV, you know, of course, everyone knows Misty. In Carbondale, she used to help run that green team at the Oregon Country Fair. There's the Pickathon um, out of Portland. And so there's a few that are on the map. But I would say, and it's, it's anecdotal, that us having that high of a diversion rate for as many years as we have um, for the size festival we're doing, I'd say is we, we feel really good about it. To get to that 90% level requires someone diving in the dumpster down to the diaper level. Here's Jason. So we, we kind of have the control, you know, well, we think we're in control, right, of kind of what's happening at the stations. But then the large roll-offs that you see sitting on what street is that, 7th Street every year, um, me and or Mark Weinhold usually, Mark Weinhold's really the, the main one. He, he gets his extra tough boots on and literally goes into the dumpster um, with gloves on and 
then we just start throwing cans and stuff out on the street. And most of the time, you'll see like this big black bag. We call them call them vendor bombs, and you'll just have like you know all this nasty food and like tomato cans and like Bud Light cans and all this other stuff in there because it's basically the vendors that are kind of like you know partying a little bit themselves like at their booth. And so they'll just throw these big bags away. And so we'll go in and bust those open. But we only, we, we use our own discretion as, as to how much we sort out of the trash bin. Um, we, we try and keep the compost and the recycling bins the cleanest. And then when we have extra bandwidth, you know, we'll, we'll jump into the trash. Because it's just kind of fun. Like most everything else at the fair, there's more than meets the eye, or maybe the nose, when it comes to how the green team does its work. We basically have to um, first work with the vendors, what we, what we say, we work upstream with them. And so we coordinate with the 25 or so food vendors before they even land in the park. And they have to have compostable and or recyclable materials to be a vendor at Mountain Fair. So that happens before the fair. And then as the fair approaches, we have to buy bags, so the compostable bags and the recycle bags and the trash bags that everyone sees at the stations all around the park. Um, we have to make sure that, you know, all of our bins and equipment in working order. And so we have a shed that's over by Dos Gringos that we just, you know, pretty much dump everything in. So the, the infrastructure of, of Mountain Fair Green Team is pretty simple. You know, it's basically bags and bins, but the logistics are, um, you know, the equipment, vendors, uh, volunteer management, supervisors, you know, to help work shifts. Equipment would be um, wheelbarrows, uh, gloves for all the volunteers, and then the, the foldable collapsible bins with the plastic lids that when you go to throw something away at Mountain Fair, that's like the classic, you know, three-color bin system that you see. And so all of that, and then we kind of have our HQ set up over by the uh, permanent bathrooms in the park. And that's where all of our volunteers come check in. They get their T-shirts. And so we're, we're kind of running our own little spaceship, as you could say, inside of Mountain Fair. Um, we're, we're connected to, to the, the volunteer booth and info booth and all that. But we've gotten, you know, big enough with our team and, and everything that we kind of just operate our own little, little island over there. I would say there's 20, 20 way stations the 20 little pods that we set up ourselves all around the park, depending on where the main traffic flow is, the exits and, you know, the hot vendor row, like where everyone wants to hang out. So around, around 15 to 20, depending on the fair. We have supervisors that help out the green team and they, they work like X amount of hours and then they get a shirt. They, you know, might get like a backstage band or what have you kind of as an incentive. So whenever the public volunteers show up for their shift, uh, they check in with the supervisor at the Green Team HQ, and then that supervisor gives them the quick rundown. Here's how here's how you store it. Here here's what's compostable. Here's what's not. Give them some gloves, and then take them and place them at at the stations, and then kind of surf around and keep an eye on them. Bring them water. You know, um, supervisors are walking around with the wheelbarrows replaced in the bag. So yeah, they get they get on the spot train. The green teamers are already thinking about how this effort might evolve in future years. I'm, I'm just very grateful to, to be part of it, and I just think it's awesome that, you know, in, in this little town of Carbondale, Colorado, that we have these 
strong community organizations as in KDK and Carbon to Arts and Mountain Fair and all these things that have been going for 50 years. And, you know, like, what, what will the year be? Uh, 2071? Okay. Um, it'll be interesting to see what music is, is hot at that time. And, <laughs> and it, are people still playing live music? And I think they absolutely will be. It'll be fascinating to see, like, can you even buy a plastic anything at that point? Um, you know, so I'm, I'm interested in kind of like the materials aspect of it as well, you know, and what the systems will be, but yeah, 50 years down the road, it's that I think that it'll, it'll still be going. It'll still have legs under it. Um, it'll just be interesting to see how it's pulled off. No power mountain fair. Carbondale catastrophe. Actually, I was like right behind backstage and I was like looking up at sunlight and I see this ball. Well, out of the corner of my eye, I saw it come down Main Street and then it turned on 7th. And I mean, it was the most incredible thing I've ever seen. It was like blue. It was blue and it was big. I mean, it was like probably, you know, with the line as the center point, it was probably three or four feet from the line. And it made this sound that was just something like you could never imagine. And all of a sudden, all of us like ran. We just like, we did the whole damn board like ran because we figured like, you know, there's like dead bodies or something. But, you know, and then you could smell the ozone, which I'd never, I'd never smelled. You know, you always hear that about, you know, big lightning strikes. You can smell ozone and you could smell it. It was just really creepy. The noise. The noise was absolutely outrageous, and the guys I was sitting here with saw flames shooting 30 feet in the air. I thought it was a firework. I thought someone was doing it on purpose. Big, beautiful firework. Beautiful firework. Beautiful firework. And you know what it did? It made the community pull together. Beautiful firework. Thank you to Doug Tucker of KDNK for producing that bit just days after the fireball. In 1999, just as the fair was starting on Friday afternoon, a massive fireball resulting from a blown transformer traveled down the electric line and blew out the power to Soper's Park. It was the kind of event where a lot of folks who weren't there said they were. And its timing at the very beginning of the fair had to be more than a coincidence, right? Was it a good omen? Was it a random accident? was a proof that the creator noticed us. Fred Herberlein, Jeff Dickinson, Olivia Pevek, and Barb Bush remember the event. And right then is when I was first meeting some of the Utes and had met Clifford Duncan, the great Ute elder. Right. And so uh, that next year, Clifford came and helped me open the fair. So Clifford came four or five times and helped do the, the opening to the fair. And then Loya, the great uh, woman elder from Fort Duchesne, came a couple times. And she did the opening that was the very first drum circle where she said this long, long prayer in Ute, the most spoken Ute I'd ever heard. 
And right then, lightning hit the, the power line over past the, the swimming pool. And this blue arc came up the lines and hit the transformer right behind the gazebo and went kablam! And it blew up and this white curl of smoke went in the air. And we had an acoustic Friday night. So when it knocked the power out, Lori brought all of the drummers out. And that was our very first big uh, drum circle. Lori was, Loeb. Yeah. yeah, Lori Loeb brought all the drummers out. And so we we started that acoustic Friday night with the first drum circle. It's one of those nice evenings, Friday night, a mountain fair. And everybody worked so hard to get it together. And we were setting up backstage. And I remember hanging out kind of sort of near the sound booth and hanging out the the band was playing and it was just a nice vibe and just a you know friday really mellow it's not too it's not too crazy on friday nights and it was just a nice vibe and all of a sudden looking over toward at the sound booth looking toward the stage and kind of looking a little bit to the right of the stage seeing this giant fireball it, it was like a sparkler you know from fourth of july and it, it was traveling down i think it had like a three or six foot um, diameter, you know, it was a big, bright uh, ball traveling down this power line. And we didn't know what was going on. And then all of a sudden it's big, boom. And everybody's just kind of freak, like what just happened? We had no idea, but we knew the sound went dead and nothing, you know, nothing was happening. And we just, you know, we struggled to figure it out. and. You know, in, in classic Mountain Fair style, the band basically is all they did was put their instruments aside or, you know, get away from the microphones and keep playing and do this incredible music. I, you know, then we all were backstage and trying to figure out what happened. And because I, I think I went backstage and was is trying to deal with like the logistics of trying to figure out what had actually happened. But it, it was definitely an amazing event. And, yeah, and there was a giant fireball. I think I was at the Garfield house when it happened, and so I didn't see it because I wasn't in the park, but I heard it, and it sounded... The picture that came to my mind was that somebody was dragging the dumpster down the street. That big, that giant mountain fair dumpster. I was imagining it being dragged down the street. The sound was extraordinary um, but I didn't get to see it I always go back to one of my favorite Friday nights was the, the, the night that the Transformer blew I, I forget what year that was it was probably I don't know eight eight nine years ago but it was a Friday night and the and the, and the Transformer right next to the park just blew just big big huge purple explosion shot of flame going up the, up the line and so we had a Friday night without electricity and so it was, it was, it was, um, people just on the stage playing music, you know, not with all this, the speakers and stuff, people were able to talk to each other. It was one of the, the nicest regatherings of the fair that I can ever flash back on. It was just so, it was just so nice and calm and peaceful. And there were just as many people there, but it just, um, but you could, you could talk to each other, you know, you could hear. And, and it was just a nice memory for me of, of how, of more, more of the feeling of what the fair was. As amazing as that event was, it wasn't the first fireball to visit Sopras Park during Mountain Fair. Tom Falker remembers one in the 1970s. There was a booth that was using mylar 
uh, strips as flags for, you know, off, off the top of their poles on their tent. And we got one of these afternoon storms came in and uh, some of those mylar strips broke loose from that uh, tent and they flew across the street and they hit the public service power lines and they arced and they, they started an ozone ball that went down the power lines, just this buzzing noise, big ball of fire going down. And, and uh, I think a lot of people at the fair, everybody looked around at it, you know, and I think a lot of people thought it was uh, supernatural or something like that because it was, it, it buzzed and popped and went flying out of town, you know, on the power lines. July in Carbondale often features some extreme weather events. Some have triggered mudslides in the Crystal Valley, closing the highway. Others have closed I-70 in Glenwood Canyon or Independence Pass above Aspen. Some have unleashed havoc on the fair itself with tumultuous, overpowering downpours that sometimes bring the fair to an early close. And then there are the quiet moments of grace, the calm after the storm, when the afternoon light streams into the park from the west through the trees that line the irrigation ditch. A vision of peace in the valley. Or the double rainbow that often graces fairgoers with its brilliant benediction. It's as if Mother Earth herself is saying, yes, I see you there. Thank you. Here are Katie and Kay's Marilyn Gleason and Luke Nessler, the Gorman brothers, Michael and James, and Katie and Kay's Mike Lemmer with Luke. Israel Kamaka Wewo Oli croons his version of Over the Rainbow to end this segment. I, uh, I uh, got struck by lightning <laughs> right through the microphone. That was kind of interesting. What? Did I miss that? <laughs> well, when we, were, uh, when we were airing the wood splitting, you know, the weather got kind of dicey. Okay. And I was kind of connected by a cord to, to the Marty, how we do our transmitting here. There was like a 40-foot wire out to me. Um, and my compatriots out there beside the wood splitting. And I had a radio in my lap, um, which was, I guess, battery operated. And it was pouring rain. And it was just one of those things. You know, I could feel this electrical equipment getting pretty wet in my lap. And there's always the possibility of some lightning. And all of a sudden, there was this jolt to my hand and my whole forearm. <laughs> Whoa. From the microphone, which I threw on the ground. And... Uh, yeah, picked it back up, and Billy Bob said, yeah, there was a big flash from that microphone. So so first there was, like, the shock from the microphone, and then there was a bolt of lightning right over the park and a big crash of thunder. So Holy I think I, moly. I think I actually got the rush of electrons from the ground going up to the lightning before the lightning, yeah, and kind of coming right through the microphone. Well, I was stuck in that storm, too, rushing back to the studio after Marcus James. Wow, I didn't know that happened. Yeah, okay. it happened. Wow. It happened, and I'm, I'm fine, you know. And, and Well, let's give you a merit badge. <laughs> Billy Bob was asking me to describe it, and I was like, I don't know how to describe it. And he said, is it like the hand of God touched you? And I was like, yes. There you That's go. That's it. Yeah. God just grabbed me by the forearm at that moment. <laughs> said, here I am. I keep going back to Fred's words during the blessing that sacred duty to have fun and it sounds like a bumper sticker cliche but i think it's more than that and uh, the broadcast of the mountain fair proves it yeah yeah he gave me a little gift of this sort of confetti which um came to him from those yaki Indi indians and this um special ceremony that they do every year to kind of drive evil out it's a mix of like paper confetti and cottonwood leaves and it's also sort of symbolic of the 
springtime overcoming the winter and mm. life coming over death and good overcoming evil. So nice, very precious. Well, I liked how uh, Reverend Peyton from the stage acknowledged the rain, and he made a good point. He said there are many people all over the country praying for rain, and tonight right. we have it here. Right. Which it means it's a blessing. It's so true. It is a If blessing. you were here in June, you know. Yes. <laughs> it's a blessing to have this rain. We got a rainbow over here. Yeah. <laughs> there seems to be a theme going on here. <laughs> Came out just for us today. But there was something different about Carbondale Mountain Fair. Um, the community, the people, the people of all ages, all breeds, all colors, um, getting together and having a good time and and doing it right in town and doing it with style and there's there's always magical weather and rainbows and it's it's just a good time to be alive in Carbondale. <laughs> a lot of my favorite memories though were when it was like just a torrential downpour and people all kind of run and hide under the tents and everything until the band starts you know they come out there a little timid you know everyone's gone there's just a muddy pit in front of them and there's like two or three people dancing in the rain and and then they they kind of pick up their pace and and pick up the energy and start gathering more and more people up to the front and before you know it it's this crazy like steaming dance party with people creating all this heat and energy and the rain still just dumping and you can like see the steam coming off the crowd and then you forget that it's even cold out and something about the rain makes everyone go even even wilder and and you just kind of gotta go for it thank you so much carbondale from the bottom of our hearts it was a journey to get here and every minute of it was worth it thank you so much thanks for dancing in the rain bringing out triple rainbow maybe we love you guys thank you that's right we are live here on KDNK in a soggy Soper's Park, but it is still a beautiful afternoon. And a little bit of rain isn't slowing anybody down as a full dance floor enjoying the music of the Al Capones there. And as they mentioned, a triple rainbow in the sky and rainbows everywhere to be found here on Earth as well, here at the Carbondale Mountain Fair, with the theme this year being the Rainbow Connection. For the second evening in our Mountain Fair this year, graced by a visit by the rainbows. It's a rainbow connection. Okay, this one's for Gabby.
When you make space for magic to happen, magic happens. Paul Barillo was Poppy the Clown at Mountain Fair for 10 years beginning in 1991. He performed a twice-daily show at the Oasis, and then he would wander around the fair in character, performing tricks and posing for photos. Here he tells the story of his encounter one year with three teenage goths, and in the telling, touches something truly essential about the Carbondale Mountain Fair. The last year I remember I was doing a show and three or four goth looking kids came up. One with a mohawk haircut, and the pierced stuff in here and the black eye makeup and tattoos and all black, just a real dark kind of energy. And they kind of slinked over to the Oasis. And you know, when you're wearing a, a black leather trench coat or, a, or dark clothes in the summer when it's 85, 90 degrees, it's like, come on. And as they came over to the show, they stood in the back and watched the show. And you could see some of the parents get a little nervous, like, what are these kids doing here? This, they're like 16, 17, this is for children. And they stayed and watched the show. And when the show was over, kids liked to come over and hug and say thank you, or how did you do this, or I liked it when you did that. And these three goth kids sort of slinked over towards me, and I looked at them and I said, did you like the show? And, um, and I have this one routine that I do year after year, I call it the juggling jacket, where I teach somebody how to juggle. And the, uh, the, the trick is at the end I put a jacket over them with the sleeves opened up, their arms behind their back, and I put my arms through, and from the front, it looks like the kid is okay. juggling. Yeah. So these kids come up to me with this sort of, sort of dark, subtle energy, and they said, uh, I said, did you like the show? And he said, yeah, Poppy. You don't remember me, do you? You did that juggling jacket routine to me when I was seven. It's still really cool to see it. Aww. And I said, really? And I gave him a big hug, and we all hugged each other. And, and some of the parents that stuck around to see wanted to know, are these clowns, these people going to give the clown trouble? And when they saw us all hugging and all that, I think at that one moment there was this transformation. When you do a fair as long, as many years as I have, and you see these children... Uh, who are six, seven, eight years old, and then they come back and they're 17, 16, and they're struggling with the life challenges of, of a teenager, a teenager growing up in a small, relatively closed community, um, yeah. and, and you know they're fighting for their identity, they're, they're searching for who they are, and you see them come over and our, our prejudices dump out on them and go, oh, this is a bad kid. And, and, and then I come there and there's this little catalyst that reminds them of their innocence, reminds me of their innocence, reminds me of my innocence, and we all have a shared moment, a, a sort of a communal moment there. And I thought it was beautiful that the parents that were there wow. witnessed that when, yeah. wow, that's cool, I was afraid of that kid, and look, he's hugging the clown. Yeah. And uh, that was was a moment for me as an entertainer that I'll never forget till I die. I don't even, I wish I could remember the names of the kids, because they were there year after year. Yeah. And, and I hope I run into some yeah. of them today, Maybe probably with their children. It's all fun and games on the third episode of the Carbondale Mountain Fair podcast series. Stay tuned. This podcast was created with the same love and care that the Carbondale Mountain Fair has been created with for 50 years. Special thanks go to Luke Nessler, Amy Kimberly, Terry Glassnap, Steve Cole, Carbondale Arts, 
KDNK and the Carbondale Historical Society.